podcast listeners, it's your host, Rafal Matuszewski, and that was a long pause to get right onto the beat, and this is episode 300, yes, 300 episodes, I am so excited to have this milestone under my belt, and more importantly, having a guest that is worthy of this number. No other than Krista Scott Dixon. She was one of my first ever big names on this podcast because I literally just messaged her and, you know, took a chance and in hopes that she would hop onto my podcast. And she was like episode seven or eight. And my first five episodes were uh, solo episodes, so that speaks volume. So thank you, Krista, from the very beginning and, you know, putting your trust in me to chat with me because I could have been like a really shitty podcast host or some rando online. But without further ado, here's Krista Scott Dixon for episode 300. I don't even think we need an intro. Like, we can just get started because I think everyone knows who you are. (laughs) (laughs) and if they don't they should yeah because i'm I'm famous on a very tiny niche of the internet (laughs) but i think like to kind of start things off i think the first good question is like when was the last time i interviewed you (laughs) because i think it's been what over at least over six months it's definitely been a while yeah yeah and then i guess the next one is like what are you currently working on What am I currently working on? Well, uh, we just finished at Precision Nutrition this new like mini course on macros, which may or may not sound super interesting if you're not in the fitness industry. But, you know, I mean, macros have become such a popular topic over the last few years. And I think a lot of people are really confused about them. Like, what does it mean and how do I apply them? And I, I think a lot of people kind of got sucked in this rabbit hole of like, inappropriately complicating their nutrition because they're like, oh, there's this macro thing and that must be some kind of magical solution. Like if I can just get 33% of this or 42% of that, then, you know, somehow that's going to get me healthy. And I think a lot of people got into this weird headspace of like counting and measuring, but not really having a clear idea of like why they were doing it or like where it was all supposed to go. So we're like, you know, why don't we precision nutrition if I, we, we call it pianifying things, right? Nice. Why don't we pianify this and, and really kind of make it accessible and simple and clear and give people a very straightforward path through it. Like, okay, if you have this need, go here. If you have that need, go here. Here's what you need to know. And it was actually really fun to do because it was like a deep dive into the science. Like, what is fat and what is protein and what are carbohydrates? And like, what are we even talking about when we're talking about macronutrients and, and why does that matter? So like we have this whole unit on the science of it. And then we get into um, talking about how do you calculate it, right? Like what do the calculations mean? Why don't they work for everyone? When do you need calculations? Um, how does energy balance play a role? Because this is the big thing people forget, right? It's like, oh, I can just, you know, do my macros and eat whatever I want. It's like, no, 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 energy balance is still a thing. Why does it matter? So we we talk about, like, how the concepts of energy balance were developed and how to calculate it. And then we get into um, the coaching part of it. And we have this really cool calculator that Brian St. Pierre worked on, um, which, like, gives you this huge range of variables that you can plug in and manipulate if you're just, you know, looking for yourself or you're looking for a client. And so, like, you can get this really personalized macro output. But we talk about, like, when does this even really matter, right? How do you apply it if you're just a person wanting to do this for yourself or if you're a coach wanting it for a client? Like, what are the questions that you should be asking about someone's goals and someone's needs and someone's life and someone's ability to actually do the things to get you to the point where you're like, okay, this is actually the plan that'll work for me. And we sort of put it on a continuum, right? So like on one end of the continuum is just choosing better quality foods or just learning to pay attention to your hunger and fullness cues or just doing a very basic tracking of like did i make a wise choice with that meal or not all the way to the more advanced kind of detailed macro tracking and we show people like you know you don't have to get like my my take on it is always unless someone is paying you money for your body you don't need to get complicated and even if someone's paying you money you should probably have your own coach 
and they can make it complicated. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, like for you, it should almost never be uh, complicated. It should almost always be as simple as it can possibly be. So that's kind of how it went down, and and it was a really fun fun project to work on. And uh, you know, uh, we had Helen Coleus, our, our PhD in molecular biology. We had Jeez. Brian Saint Pierre. We had Adam Fight. You know, one of our super coaches. So we had an awesome team. We had Craig Weller, uh, and kind of so we had all these different perspectives uh, on. You know, you know, Craig comes from the military. He was really interested in, okay, uh, how how do you perform when your macros are like completely not perfect, right? Like you're on your 23rd hour of a ruck through the mountains and you've run out of rations. Like, what do you do then, right? So yeah, it was a really fun project. So we just wrapped that up and we're thinking about doing a lot more of that in, in future. So that was a very long-winded <laughs> answer to what are you working on now? But that's, yeah. that's kind of where we're going, yeah. No, that's awesome because I, I feel like if you search up like calculate your macros online, it always takes you to like some meathead website of like tracking your shit and it's not very appealing to like general population. And I well, think yeah. PN does a really good job of making it like you know, welcoming for any person that stumbled upon their website and are like, okay, I've heard this macro thing. Let's let's see what that is, right? But I think a lot of times that macro word is like, it's a new thing in the fitness industry that everyone needs to know. And I even find like when I coach nutrition with clients and like I'm taking them through all the habits. And they're like, you know, first month, they're like, so what are we doing macros? And I'm like, yeah. well, let's let's start drinking more than one cup of water a day. How about that? Right. Totally. Uh, and I think you're getting at something so important, right, which is that, like, it's such a low priority for the average person to yeah. get this stuff nailed down in a super detailed way. And, and the term macros is one of those things that's like it's bandied around so much, it's meaningless. It becomes this meaningless term, right? And And but also people give it this magical value like oh if i just get my macros dialed in nailed down whatever then the thing will happen for me right so it becomes this very meaningless construct of like macros is this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow yeah. and i think a lot of people even a lot of coaches if i said to them well like what do you mean by macros and and why does a specific percentage matter i think a lot of them would really struggle to even explain it. Um, and so, you know, kind of translating this for for actionable steps is one of the things that we're like really concerned with and passionate about. And um, Brian St. Pierre in particular has been very, very, which is cool because like Brian is, an, is a former engineer. So I love that he comes from this field of like being super detailed and meticulous and numbers oriented. But his big thing is how can we take all this complexity, all these equations, and simplify it. And so we did a lot of fun stuff with figuring out how can we use something simpler like a hand-based portion size and still get it within like one or two percent of weighing and measuring your food. And that was something really cool. Like we actually started running experiments. Can like what's the level of accuracy that we can get with just hand size portions? And like after we ran the numbers, we're like, wow, this only has a margin of error of at most 5% if you're a sloppy hand <laughs> portion right. measure. But it actually gets you extremely close to a very precise number without having to you know, do numbers things. So that's kind of cool. It's like judo, right? It's like, what's the least amount of effort that I can do for the best result? And so one thing that's cool about this portion, this calculator we that Brian produced was, it actually will give you a tracking sheet but in hand portions. So like it'll run all the calculations for you, all the math, and it'll just spit it out and say, okay, forget all the percentages, just eat four palms of protein today. Like that's what it gives you. And I love that because it's like, you know, there's a little picture of a hand, right? And so people can get it, they can understand it, the average person can figure that out. And it's so applicable for so many more people than, okay, here's your spreadsheet, go have fun. Like the average person is like, come on, man. Even yeah. the average athlete, like they got better things to do. They're out on the track, they're out on the field, they're in the gym. Like they, you know, yeah. they don't want to be pulling out the calculator and the food scale either. <laughs> yeah, like that's the worst thing ever. Like, cause I remember a couple of years ago, I followed like a strict macro diet and like, I was like, all right, here goes my lunch. Now I like take my little scale out and take my chicken and like put it on. I'm like, oh wait, that's way past eight ounces. I need to take a little off. Like it was so annoying, but yeah, like the hand portions are gonna help a lot, a lot of people. 
Well, that's the thing, right? And I think like there's always a place for for measuring if you want to and if you need to, right? Because it can be a really good uh, calibration or correction of your mental model. If you're like, oh, I'm only eating a tablespoon of peanut butter, and then you like measure a tablespoon of peanut butter, and <laughs> yeah. then you're, you have to be sad for a while. <laughs> you're yeah. like, oh, that's less than I thought, right? So I do think, you know, for most people, it probably is useful for a day or a couple of days to actually use the measuring cups, the measuring spoons. If you have a food scale, cool. But like as a way to live, no, for God's sake, no. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, it's, it was interesting because we actually had a lot of our higher level coaches, like our level twos, even people who would qualify as level threes, um, try the hand portion model to see, like as an experiment, just for fun, could I get super ripped by using just hand portions? And it, they were so blown away by like, oh my gosh, I can get shredded if I use hand portions. The thing is, the trick is to be consistent. Yeah. And that is really the trick, right? It's not so much that you need super precision, it's that you need consistency. And one guy was really cool. He got completely shredded and but he had this paradigm. He was like, "Okay, I have to be a quote-unquote regular client. I have to live my life like a regular client and see if this works. So I can only work out 3 times a week. Um, I have to go and get drunk once a week." <laughs> like he had this set of like imaginary rules for a regular person's life, and he still managed to do it. And so it was such a a beautiful, elegant illustration of the concept of it's not about the details, it's about the consistency. And that I think, I mean, you know as a coach, right? That is where people truly truly struggle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So did you guys find like a certain percentage in macros better than the other or is it all kind of the same depending on the individual? Yeah, I mean, there are some baselines that I think probably apply to most people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that a slightly higher than recommended protein intake or even significantly higher than recommended protein intake is best for most people for most goals most of the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we know that's a, a baseline. So a lot of the recommendations about protein are probably a little bit too low for optimal function because you have to remember the context in which a lot of food recommendations get developed. Many of them are aimed at preventing malnutrition. which is different than optimizing performance or optimizing health or optimizing function. So protein recommendations in particular are somewhat low for most people. Um, And again, I say most people, most goals, most of the time, there's always going to be people for whom any kind of diet is inappropriate, right? There's going to be someone out there who needs a low protein intake for whatever reason. But anyway, for most people, most goals, most of the time, more protein, probably better. Um, the other thing that people miss with carbohydrates is when you cut carbs, you typically cut fiber, unless you're supplementing with fiber. And we know that fiber, in terms of keeping your gut microbiome healthy, in terms of helping your microbes create short-chain fatty acids and other byproducts, we know that this is really crucial. So typically for most people, most of the time, for most schools, blah, 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 um, a higher fiber intake is really, really important. So when you're cutting your carbs, if you are, if that's something you want to do, um, you're going to, most of the time, unless you're supplementing, deprive yourself of that crucial fiber intake, which is going to affect the health and function of your microbiome. So that's kind of like a side effect that people don't realize when they're hacking out their carbs. I think the thing is that very few people perform well if they're athletes, if they're active on low-carb diets. Um, now, Craig Weller had this very interesting angle because, again, he works with people in extreme environments, right? So sometimes if you're in the military or, you know, tactical professions, you don't get to choose what you have in your pack to eat, right? Like yeah. there are going to be times when you're fasting or starved, basically. So it helps you to adapt to metabolically to kind of being able to use whatever fuel is available. So in that case, you can use strategic fasting, strategic keto diets, whatever, to help your body be more flexible. But for most people, if they're looking for performance, if they want energy for their workouts, probably there's a baseline carbohydrate carbohydrate intake that will enable that performance. So probably for most people, uh, a low-carb diet is not ideal if performance is the goal. So those were sort of the big pieces, and of course, food quality matters, right? Get your fruits, your vegetables, your blah, 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 all that stuff, right? Like eat, eat real food and you know think about the quality of it. Those are the big rocks in the jar. 
Um, and healthy fats, I mean, that's another piece, right? We need, there's a certain level of essential fatty acids that we need. Um, beyond that, it's kind of open-ended. So past those kind of big rocks in the jar, people can do really, really well on all kinds of diets. And there's huge variation in how people respond to certain diets. Uh, so for example, there are genetic differences in our ability to produce amylase, which is the enzyme in our mouth and in our digestive tract that helps us digest amylose, the starch carbohydrates. Um, and we think that there's a correlation between your genetic ability to produce amylase and your body weight, which I think is really interesting. Cool. So there's lots of little things like that. So it's like everyone is the same and everyone is different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just sure. kind of paradoxical truth. So, but that's that's what I would say are the, the kind of general things to think about. Yeah, now that kind of now takes me to um, the guy who played Aquaman, Jason Momoa. Like, I remember reading an article that when he was prepping for that role, his non-negotiable was to have a Guinness every single day. So it's like nutritionists and dietitians like made sure that he could have a Guinness per day and that somehow he got shredded for that movie. Yeah, that's, ex that's exactly right. I, I worked with a fighter who was similar. He was like, I will do anything to cut weight as long as I can have peanut butter every day. Yeah. I was like, I think we can make that happen. Um, and I mean, that's actually a really good point because we, we talk about alcohol as a fourth macronutrient, which yeah. it technically is, right? Yeah. And hopefully it's not like 30% of your energy. Intake, but it's it's still a factor, right? So how do you account for that? And it, it's absolutely possible to to get shredded with an intake that is not quote unquote perfect, yeah. but rather which is extremely consistent. That's that's what makes the magic. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. And like even right now for me, because one of my clients got me a beer advent calendar, and amazing. Literally, like the last you know what day is it today? The twenty third. The last twenty three days have been like amazing. Like come home after training clients or with, with patients. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to have a beer. And then the day after, ooh, I'm going to get another beer. Like every <laughs> single day, it's like the most basic thing ever. But like I'm getting to that point where I'm like, I'm kind of like over it now. Like I don't think I can like just drink beer every single day. But yeah. like I don't think I've gained a pound. Like you know what I mean? Like my energy like expenditure is pretty high because I'm still training a lot, mm -hmm. but I'm pretty sure that when I stop drinking a beer every day, I'll probably end up losing weight. But it's kind of interesting that a lot of people have this like fear against certain things like alcohol or chips or whatever it is. Like you know, if they touch it, they're just gonna like balloon up or something like that. Yeah, and I think I mean like so many of our clients, especially the ones that really struggle hard or they've been on some kind of diet roller coaster or whatever. Yeah. I think the ones that really have the hardest time are the ones who have that all or nothing thinking. Yeah. Like we just had a client recently say to us something like, oh, I, I really appreciate that your precision nutrition program is, is about moderation because I was thinking I would have to give up. Okay, now there was this long list. It was like grains, dairy, sugar, drinking. Like there was like six things. Everything. That they were just, <laughs> just like, I was like, what is left for you to live on? My God, like yeah. it's a, a plate of Tic Tacs and dust or something, right? <laughs> Um, and yeah, so I think that's the prevailing mind, the mental model of like, it's all or nothing. Either I'm on the wagon, quote unquote, or I'm off the wagon and off the wagon is like a flaming dumpster fire of yeah. shitty choices. Right? Yeah. Um, and like, really, again, unless you're getting paid to look a certain way or perform a certain way. And even then, if, if you are, you're not going to have to do that all the time. It's generally, there's like a competition season or there's a photo shoot or there's a movie shoot. Like no one lives that life all the time or should live that life all the time because that's crazy town and dysfunctional and damaging, right? So, But I think people cannot imagine the kind of middle path, the middle way where you still get to experience life in all ways, but you can also, you know, stay healthy, stay fit, stay functional. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, and so I feel like one of our jobs as coaches is to help people understand, yeah, it's all about trade-offs. So, you know, one beer a day, if you're active and everything else is in place, probably not that big a deal. Yeah. You may get bored of it after a while. Maybe it's one beer every couple of days, whatever. Five beers a day, eh, maybe think about that, right? Yeah. But it doesn't ever have to be no beer ever. That's the point. Yeah.
Mm-hmm. Well, that kind of reminds me of like um, Jordan Syatt. I saw like a quick article that he ate McDonald's every single day and still yeah. lost weight. And I'm like, yeah. that's brilliant. Like, that is so awesome. And I'm like, I should just do that with beer. <laughs> I, you know what? Let's do It's funny because I, I have a friend of mine who talks about she, She's like, yeah, I'm on a wine detox. And I'm like, oh, like, are you not drinking wine? She's like, no, no, no. I'm actually trying to get off chocolate. So I'm drinking yeah. wine instead of eating chocolate. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, I feel like there's an intrinsic logic there. She's yeah. like, yeah. So then I'm going to taper off my wine intake once I get off the chocolate. I was like, that's not the worst plan I've ever yeah, heard. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but now this kind of gets into a whole, like, topic of, like, mental health that I like talking about with nutrition. And I find, like, I was talking about this with someone else the other day where, like, if your way of thinking is not the best, sometimes when it comes to, like, your influence on food, it just doesn't really match up. So I'm kind of curious in, like, your experience, like, if people are dealing with, say, like, depression, anxiety, or emotional issues, like, how much does that affect their choices on food and their relationship with food? Yeah, I mean, that's a huge topic, okay. right? Like, we could talk about that for 16 hours. Yeah. I mean, I think I think one of the big ones is people have, um, I mean, there's lots and lots of big ones, but one of the ones that comes to mind immediately is people have mental models about how this works that are inaccurate. So for example, um, one of the mental models might be, I have to be very critical of myself in order to be successful. Uh, because I, you know, if I'm not critical, that means I'm letting myself off the hook or I'm going too easy on myself. And we know that self-criticism provokes the threat response, which makes us, you know, respond in whatever entrenched way we respond to stress um so that makes it way worse right so there's like this loop of like self-criticism feeling stressed and threatened needing a break from that stress what do i do i eat or i restrict or i over exercise or like whatever else i do to deal with that feeling of of distress so that 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 i think is a big one um we just talked about the all or nothing mental model that's a huge one um related to that as like everything has to be super complicated or it won't work that if it's too easy or if it's too simple, like, you know, we somehow mistrust that. So there's lots of, like, I would say cognitive errors and cognitive biases. Um, so, so we're talking, like, here's, like, we're at the top level of cognition, right? So there's lots of cognitive errors and cognitive biases that people have. Um, selective uh, negative filtration, which I call, like, shit-colored glasses. Like, everything you do, all you can look, all you can see is what sucks, right? And I have clients all the time who... Are making incredible progress like you know they're steadily losing fat and getting stronger and feeling better and sleeping better and their pain is less and they're like yeah I'm just really disappointed because I you know I didn't lose blah blah like whatever thing they think they should have done and I'm like are you fucking kidding me like you're winning life in 20 different dimensions right now but they don't see that so that's a big one. And then if we kind of descend down into layers of the brain to, you know, anxiety, depression, post-trauma, I think those are absolutely huge. And I think we don't realize how much those affect us um, because a lot of us think we're handling it just fine, right? <laughs> and, and yet we find ourselves, quote-unquote, doing things and those things feel very confusing like why am i hiding in the pantry at nine o'clock at night eating my kids goldfish crackers like i don't i don't understand why that's happening right because i feel fine so like you know we tend not to acknowledge the effect that these things have on us and um we tend to see it as a nutrition problem rather than um a broader based set of phenomena that are all related. So like my relationship stress, my financial stress, my stress at work, my stress of being a parent, my lack of sleep, um, like all of these things are absolutely connected to appetite, hunger, eating behaviors, my ability to think clearly and wisely and inhibit impulses. Because part of our thinky brain's job is to inhibit us from doing stuff, right? blurting out inappropriate things to our boss <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. whatever smacking our kid you know like whatever right like that there's there's part of our brain that's like don't do that that is not a smart idea think about it you know? <laughs> but as the stress ratchets up we we become less and less able to use that part of our brain so absolutely mental health is a huge huge thing and then there's this whole piece of post-trauma and i think a lot of people um 
who who work in the field of obesity and you know fat loss and and weight management don't realize that if someone has struggled with a weight problem or body fat or whatever eating issues for a long long time there's a reason like they're not just being lazy stupid assholes there's something going on with them for which overeating is helping them cope so whether that's physical abuse sexual abuse something that happened you know emotional neglect when they were younger um i have a ton, like a lot of my clients are like adult children of alcoholics or schizophrenics or there was emotional neglect in the home or you know they were sexually assaulted like some shit happened to people right yeah. and they and they eat or they got heavier to cope with that so the effects of trauma are huge 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 especially in clients who have like really struggled for a while so i mean that's kind of like the cole's notes there's lots of stuff we could get yeah. into but you know that's the big overview so why do you think a lot of people like turn to food when they're in like really stressful situations or they had trauma in their life rather than like i don't know playing video games or something like that you know what i mean like why is food such a like an easy gateway to help them cope well, I think they do, right? And I think, you know, typically addictions travel in packs. And I don't want to say that this is an addiction, but it's like a, it's an addiction-like tendency, right? Um, there's a researcher who calls addictions ritualized comfort-seeking behaviors. Hmm. And I love that, yeah. right? Because it takes it out of the realm of, like, a chemical addiction. So, but there's, you know, so we can think of, like, addictive-type behaviors as, like, something that provides momentary relief from distress or tension or pain. So there's all kinds of things, and, and typically these things travel together, right? Food is a great one because it's so primal, right? Like, as a baby, like that's the first thing you get to calm you down is food and eating and the experience of chewing and like putting stuff in your mouth and so i think food is a really good go to cuz it is so fundamental but we do other things too right whether that's you know um, surfing social media or playing video games or shopping or whatever it's all about the tension relief but i think that food definitely has a more primal place uh, in our evolution. And it's something we can't get away from either, right? Like I can avoid video games. I could avoid, you know, going to bars. I can avoid a lot of places where dysfunctional choices might happen, but I can't avoid eating. Um, so I think it's like, it, it, it's partially a problem because we're just confronted with it every single day. And in our culture, it's so omnipresent. Like imagine being someone who struggles with alcohol and people get together to drink at least three times a day. Yeah. And, you know, there's drinks in your office and people are always pushing drinks in your face. And like you walk to the subway and someone's like, hey, you want a beer? Like, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. oh my God. So, um, so you know, part of it is, is kind of a cultural context uh, as well, where it's like food is the answer to everything. And it's interesting because I, I have clients sometimes who say, well, you know, like healthy eating is so boring yeah. and I'm like when did we get to the point where food had to be entertaining like 24 yeah. 7 that's like saying you know what I'd like to take a shower but cleanliness is so boring <laughs> paying my taxes is so boring yeah a lot of being an adult is fucking boring yeah. right but we don't have those expectations that those things are going to entertain us so I think it's really interesting that people expect food and eating to give them that hit and be fun and interesting yeah. and sexy all the time. Yeah, it, it, it's tough because like I think people who sell food know this, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, what's the best way to like dress up food to make it more appealing to people? So like we have almost like everything against us to actually be successful with food, and like people develop all these bad habits for like decades, and then you as a coach are like, holy fuck, we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> God. Yeah, totally. And I think people don't realize how much of choice is contextual. Um, like, we all are deluded that we have free will and we're choosing individually and independently, but that is so not true. <laughs> like, your, your choices are, like, overwhelmingly shaped by your environment. And if you've ever, like, changed your environment in a really drastic way, you know that this is completely true. Like I live in, you know, you and I live in Vancouver, yeah. one of the most active, fit, healthy cities 
in North America, oh, is it that everyone in Vancouver is just a better human being, right, more motivated? No, it's because it's December 23, it's 10 degrees Celsius outside. Yeah. The weather is beautiful. There's mountains, there's hiking trails, there's biking, like there's everything you could want to facilitate physical activity <laughs> right now, right? Whereas if you live in like, you know, some city in Northern Canada where there's like, you know, four feet of snow outside right now and it's minus 40, you're like, hell no, yeah. I'm not getting outside. So, I mean, these contextual factors really, really make a difference. And I think in, in ways that people do not realize. Yeah, and like I always tell clients about how your environment influences almost everything you do. And I always kind of start with like a little game of like auditing the five people that's most close to you to see if yeah. they have an influence on you. Because like, I think almost everyone has that like one friend that like is the super like negative Nancy that was like always kind of dragging you down a little bit just to keep you in your place. And I'm like, just get rid of those people. Like they're just terrible and toxic because like that's not going to make you feel motivated to like maybe I should go to the gym today or maybe I should cook for myself like those people are just just terrible absolutely and I think again like I think we don't realize how influenced we are by them and so now it's time for me to share a personal story and now things are gonna get like super yeah. deep and real um, but like my father passed away recently like a few months ago um, you know, I guess two months ago and like what was so interesting in this phenomenon and this was expected I mean he was older whatever but like it was so interesting to notice that with his passing the whole family configuration changed. But in my mind, I hadn't realized how much of a script of my parents I was still following in my life choices at age 46. And when he passed away, and you know, my mother's getting older as well, and she's kind of moving into Alzheimer's, like all of a sudden I felt this sense of like, oh my gosh, there actually is no script. But I hadn't realized how much that script was still there. And so like after this event happened, I felt this very surprising sense of like, oh my gosh, I don't have to follow the rules anymore. And I was like, what the hell is that? Like, that's so weird and unexpected a thought to have in my brain. But that was that was the case. And as I reflected on it, I was like, wow, I was still kind of trying to make at least some life choices to make my family happy absolutely unconsciously um but that was just so so interesting and i think that many many people if they're not sociopaths right, <laughs> live their life with at least some consideration of how is this going to affect other people um am i going to fit in am i going to be part of this group is this okay based on the values that i was taught or that i absorbed or that are surrounding me um and are like whose values are these are they mine like truly truly mine or are they someone else's that i feel like would be too disruptive to change and i think i mean we're recording this at the holiday season right like everyone is in this right now <laughs> so <Yeah>. hard <laughs> confronting their their um you know the scripts that they grew up with from their family of origin or or whatever so um yeah there's a lot of stuff in there that i think we that we really don't realize until we bump up against it until we try to change it and then it pushes back so hard and we're like that's weird where did that come from right? yeah for mm -hmm. sure yeah like another thing i wanted to get into as well is like for those people that are i would say like borderline obese and obese and say they're dealing with some sort of injury or whatever how much does like their inflammation in their body kind of magnify that pain because like i had a client that you know he kind of worked his way up the ladder had a good paying manager job but like like a lot of hip pain been trying to go see different practitioners kind of helped not really and just got to a point where he decided that he had to quit his job because it was causing its pain but in the back of my head I'm like honestly like if you just like lost some weight and like started moving a little bit more like I feel like it would help a lot and now he's like not working still in pain stopped exercising completely and I'm like a lot of times people just don't see that benefit of like if we just like say lost 10 pounds 20 pounds whatever it is how much you know your pain might actually subside a little bit so i'm kind of curious of like how much does you know nutrition influence 
like if you have an injury, if if it actually does magnify any anything like that. Oh, I definitely think that it does. And I think really what you're getting at is what we would call the biopsychosocial model, right? Mm -hmm. Which is the idea that, that pain especially is a really fascinating thing, um, that there, there are these biological components or physiological components. So let's say elevated uh, inflammatory chemicals um, or swelling edema in the joints that cause pressure on nerves. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's like when you wake up in the morning and you have your back pain is worse because your, your discs have swelled or, mm -hmm. or even just the muscles around have kind of swelled through the night so you're stiff and then once it gets worked out it's okay so there's like these physiological mechanical factors um depending on where the pain is it could also be mechanical loading right so if you're putting 40 50 extra pounds on a joint then that joint might be a little pissed off at you yeah. right um so there are these physiological pieces and then there are like cognitive mental pieces which is beliefs about pain um <clears throat> You know, do you catastrophize your pain? There's very good evidence showing that beliefs about pain affect your experience of pain. Um, you may, if you have beliefs about pain, like, oh, I just get on with my life, it's just gonna be there, that's cool. You may feel the same level of pain in a way, but you may be much, much more functional. Um, whereas if you believe, oh my God, this is a frightening, scary thing, I'm screwed, I'm doomed, you're going to experience your pain as much more severe or limiting. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's emotional factors, right? Like we all know that stress makes everything worse. Distress makes everything worse. Um, and so, you know, if you're experiencing um, any kind of emotional stress, whether that's stress from work, loneliness, isolation, relationship issues, you're gonna feel more pain. And you're gonna, a lot of people get <clears throat> like stressed out about the stress, right? <laughs> or, or they get stressed out about the pain, um, and pain is very correlated with anxiety, depression, you know, other things like that, largely because of how we enter into relationship with the pain. Now, I want to be really careful here because I don't want to say like, you know, it's your fault if you're in pain. It's not like that, but we know that pain is a very, very subjective experience. Um, I mean, one of the best examples of that is phantom limb pain, right? Like, yeah. so people who have limb amputations will still feel the pain in a joint that isn't even there or, or a limb that isn't even there because their brains have learned this is a thing that feels pain and it's grooved the pathway. So we feel pain in our brains um, and, you know, lots of stuff goes into the brains, right? Lots of inputs and outputs. So um, absolutely, the physiological um, you know, factors are, are key. Are you eating a pro-inflammatory diet, a diet that increases inflammation? Are you, um, you know, not providing your body with the raw materials that it needs in order to heal? Uh, for example, you know, we, we know that a higher protein intake leads to better injury repair because your body has the bricks to build the house, right? <laughs> so absolutely, there are nutritional factors. Um, and, but a lot of it starts with like your, again, I keep coming back to mental models, your mental model of your pain and how you're able to soothe yourself in the face of that pain. When I hurt, what do I do? How do I think? How do I show up to that? Um, that's really the key piece, but being inflamed never helped. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excessively mechanically loading a joint that's already pissed off never helped. So the, I, I kind of think of it as like a belt and suspenders thing, right? The more stuff you can throw at a problem, the better. But I think educating people about pain and what pain is and what its job is, I think is maybe the place to start. Because I think, you know, if you're not in the business of therapy, you don't know how pain works. Um, I mean, back pain is a great example, right? Like if you have, if you have a muscle spasm in just the right spot, you're gonna swear that you are giving birth through your belly button, right? <laughs> you're just like, you're, I'm giving birth to a baby sea urchin out of my belly button right now, just because you have a muscle spasm right next to a nerve. Conversely, you can have a back that's like all manner of screwed up and not feel the pain or feel much less than you should. So that we know, especially from back pain, that there's very little correlation between the amount of damage and the amount of pain that you feel. Yeah. Um, so I think educating people about stuff like that is, step number one before we get to the conversation about you know your inflammatory diet is making this yeah. worse <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, and I think it also comes down to, like, mindset, because, like, one of the stories I always bring up to, like, patients and just clients in general is one of my clients, I think it was back in 2015 or 14, um, we have, like, this ride called the Ride to Conquer Cancer, and it was during a year where we had this, like, big windstorm, and as she's, you know, riding on her bike, tree breaks and actually, like, hits her, severs her spine, and she was flown into Seattle's um, emergency room to get surgery. And I remember that Sunday, and I trained her on Monday morning, she actually like texted me like, hey, broke my back. I'm not going to be at the gym on Monday. I'm like, what? And then I started seeing all these like images of like, her x-rays, and there are like, plates that are fused into her spine. I'm like, oh, my God, like, are you okay? And her personality has always been like, just, you know, whatever shit comes at her way, she's like, okay, I'm just going to deal with it. And so that was in August, and her first day back in the gym was, like, December 14th. And I was, like, counting in my head. I'm like, that was a really fast, like, return to the gym. And the moment she got out of the hospital, she's like, all right, physio, chiro, massage. I just got to do whatever I have to do. And, like, to this day, like, you would never even know that she, like, severed her spine in half. Like, she just dealt with it. And I think any other person would be like, oh, my God, am I ever going to walk again? I don't think I can ever, like, work out. I don't think I can ride my bike. Like... It really depends on, like, how you process the whole situation. And if you just look at it like, all right, well, yeah, fuck, I broke my back, but what am I going to do, just sit here and just do nothing? Like, you kind of have to keep rolling with the punches, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's, I mean, that's such an important um, such an important story. And it's, it's tricky because, you know, the nature of pain, one of the jobs that pain has is to... Um, tell us to slow down, yeah. right? And to keep us safe. And that's great. Like, we probably shouldn't be running on a broken leg, right? Yeah. Um, at the same time, I think pain can often be overzealous in its role, in its protective role. So it's like we have to dance with it a little, little bit and not, like, I mean, we have sort of both ends of the spectrum, right? One end of the spectrum is like, you know, the Patrick Swayze and Roadhouse, like, pain don't hurt. <laughs> I'm just going to get on with it, um, like, at any cost. Uh, and I think we see clients who have trained through injuries. Like when I have clients that come to me and they're like, yeah, I tore, I tore my biceps tendon. And I'm like, you had to work on that for like 18 months, like hacksawing that thing gradually every yeah. single day, right? Like that that's dedicated effort. So we often see injuries in our business that the client has really worked on that and they have ignored their pain in a non-functional way yeah. to cause further damage, right? So that's one end of the spectrum, like complete unawareness of one's body and an unwillingness to care for it. The other end of the spectrum is like total protection, total fear-based behavior. I'm just going to immobilize myself completely forever and not do anything ever again. Now, neither of those are particularly helpful, right? The, the most useful attitude is let's play a game, right? Let's dance with the pain a little bit allow it to be present, accept it, honor it, respect it, but not be overdetermined by it. And, and know that it comes and goes and know that it will be dynamic, uh, know how to play with it, right? When is my pain less? Oh, cool. Uh, if I get up and get moving a little bit, it starts to ease up, okay, cool, then I can do some stuff, right? So that is absolutely the best attitude is to not be afraid of it, but to respect it in a healthy way and understand that it has a job to do. And then past a certain point, be like, like I have this long-standing hip injury that's always annoyed me, but I'm like, okay, dude, I know we're past the point of damage. Like you cannot be still broken right now. You're giving me sort of like just signals. And so to recognize, to, to, to get to know it, right? So I now know with it, I'm like, is this just shenanigans or is this like a legitimate yeah. A signal for me to change what I'm doing. And you can only do that if you go into the pain and begin to develop a relationship with it. For sure. Um, so maybe for like the last bit here, because now we're kind of coming up to the hour, but you know, since we're coming into 2020, I'm kind of curious of like, what were your two or three biggest highlights of 2019? Um... Well, I mean, do we mean like professionally or personally? Is this kind of open-ended? Mm, let's make it open-ended, you know? Let's just see yeah. what happens. <laughs> well, I, like the two things I would think for me, like one, the, on a professional level, I mean, we, we put out our fourth edition of our PN certification 
just I'm so completely proud of this. We had an amazing team. We pulled it together in a in record time. It was a crazy idea. Like we all we all got together in February in Miami around a pool, and we we're like, you know what? Uh, just not really happy with the shirt as it is, right? So we're like, let's totally redo it. Okay, that was me, and then I convinced everyone else to do it. Yeah. But anyway, that was the upshot. So we completely revised and rethought and upgraded this. Um, PN certification. So that was like a huge professional highlight just to see the quality of the work that we put out and the commitment to, you know, like educating coaches to be better coaches um, and and making it a very practice-based paradigm. Like, okay, you want to learn? Cool. Here's some stuff that you can do right away. So I'm really proud of that professionally. Personally, um, something that's been incredibly useful for me over the last year, I would say even in the last two, three months, has been reading and research about ADHD. Um, And I don't really have the H part, but to discover, like, meeting, like, I met the clinical criteria for ADD, which shocked me, because I think of myself as a, you know, like, I I don't meet that kind of stereotype presentation, right, of someone who can't keep it together. But I discovered that it's different in adults and it's different in women in particular. So ADD looks different for adult women most of the time. So that was like, whoa. And then, like, digging into the research and digging into the kind of clinical practice around it and going, oh, my gosh, like, there are there were so many other related pieces of it that I hadn't known about. And everything I read about, like, just made Tetris block after Tetris block fall into place. Things like how do you need to work? Um, how do you think? How does your brain work? How are your emotions? Like, people with ADD tend to have different levels of sensitivity and emotional regulation so like reading about all this stuff everything just started to make so much sense and i was like wow so for 2020 how can i carve out a workflow a work path a work style a a work routine that truly works for me because i think you know if you're an entrepreneur or if you're you know just kind of a knowledge worker you read so much about other people's way of doing things. Mm-hmm. And I think in North America, we really fetishize productivity. Just doing, 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 doing all the things. Well, if you have ADD, that is an absolute recipe for disaster. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you can do all the things, you feel like shit afterwards. You're, you just feel so depleted and, and spun up. And So 2020 for me is like really sitting down and and going from, you know, what we call the owner's manual, right? Like looking at the data of my own experience and saying, what truly works for me uh, in terms of, you know, again, what do I need? What's my work routine? What's my energy style? Whatever. And how can I build an occupation uh, and a career out of that versus trying to just follow someone else's path? So those are those two things sort of go together, I think, actually. And I think that, you know, if you're listening, enabling your own unique tendencies frees you to be more creative, more productive in the long run. So, yeah. Yeah, like I think that this is what I like to learn about myself is like what are the best ways for me to work or like, you know, interact with someone and like I love personality tests. I love reading about other entrepreneurs, what they did and like looking at, you know, their lifestyle and like I like what this person did but I don't like what they do here so I'm going to change that thing and like just learning more about yourself to like give your 100% of whatever you're doing is like probably the best thing in this world compared to like I'm going to sit in this cubicle every single day from 9 to 5 and just stay on this computer and just hate my life yeah totally and I think like there's so many messages about what it means to be a good person and a good partner and a good worker and a good whatever a good entrepreneur even um, you know, when we read like people's like, oh, you know, morning routines, right? Like, oh, I get up at five in the morning and I drink some weird shake with mushrooms <laughs> yes. in it and whatever. And, and everyone's like, oh, that must be the path to success. But like, first of all, it's bullshit because the person who tells you they're doing it isn't even doing it. But but it also, I think, encourages us, encourages us to feel like there's only one way to do stuff. And I think for coaches in particular, they get really locked into oh, this is the way to coach. I have to coach online in this way or in person in this way, rather than saying, okay, what are the Lego blocks of me that I'm starting with? And how can I build a practice that is truly authentic to me 
um, whether that's practical, logistical, or um, values-based, right? What are my values? How do I want to work? Who do I want to be? What kind of person do I want to show up as for my clients? And what facilitates that? What enables it? When am I at my best? Okay, cool. How can I take those factors and amplify them? Yeah, 100%. Like, I found out for myself, like, when I get in those modes over just, like, working on my laptop for, like, three hours straight and, like, not taking a break, I start, like, feeling really, really low energy. And the weird thing that I found is, like, if I'm at the clinic or at the gym, if I, like, take a break to go talk to someone, for some reason it just makes me feel so good. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. all right, I can go back to my laptop and, like, continue. So, like, before I would spend hours upon hours just on my laptop and I'm like, I just need like human connection every so often for like 10 minutes and then I'm good to go. There you go. Yeah, yeah. That, re- that reboots you. And for me, it's the same thing with movement. I now have this like formula in my head of like X number of minutes of movement earns me Y number of minutes of concentration, yeah. especially if it's like aggressive movement. Like people are always like, oh, you know, to relax, you should try meditation. And I've tried it. Like it's just monkey mind everywhere. Yeah. Whereas if I go to the MMA gym and like smash the shit out of a heavy bag or like just roll around on the floor and wrestle a little bit, that is like my Zanax. Like I come home and I'm so zen, I'm so focused. So I need to be a little bit aggressive um, and like feel some impact or some roughness before I can calm down. Um, so that's, you know, that's what I do. So it's like, okay, an hour of this, this earns me three hours of that kind of yeah. thing. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe for the last thing for this episode, which is going to be my 300th episode of my Woo-hoo! podcast. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. Um, if you had to give like some parting words for the audience to set them up for success in 2020, here it is. <laughs> here it is. Uh, you know what? Um, do not be all or nothing. Do not overcomplicate. Look for the middle ground. Go slow. Keep it simple because consistency, clarity, <laughs> compassion works a million times better than any spreadsheet. <laughs> so that's the advice that I would give. <laughs> Perfect. So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. My pleasure. All right, so that's going to wrap up episode 300 with Chris and Scott Dixon. Man, it's good to say 300 episodes. It's surreal, to say the least. So remember, like, episode one, recording in my closet because I felt embarrassed that someone was going to listen to me. So stupid. Those days where I had so much anxiety leading up to me interviewing somebody to a point where I wanted to throw up and just cancel last minute, but I just hammered through. So thank you for all my listeners since day one. Thank you for all the listeners that have been supporting me for years. Thank you for all the supporters out there that have bought t-shirts, bought my ebook, and for those who haven't, buy my ebook. The link is in my show notes. And all those people who supported the show by sharing the podcast, sharing a Facebook post, sharing a, you know, Instagram post, whatever it was. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So here's to another 300 episodes and to all my other endeavors in the upcoming years. I honestly can't wait to share all that I have for 2020. You guys are amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Until next time, you guys.